So we turn now to God's Word in Romans chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for your Word. We thank you it comes without error, that it's linary, verbal inspiration. All the words of the Bible are inspired by you. And so we pray for the illumination of your word by your spirit, that we might be able to have our souls, our, our persons to be recreated into the image of Christ by your inspired holy word this morning. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. So just for the context in verses particularly... Um, 12 through 29 of chapter 2, Paul's pretty much gone through and just said that, um, well, let's, let's read beginning of verse 25 and we'll see that context. For circumcision is of value if you obey the law, but if you break the law, your circumcision becomes uncircumcision. So if a man who is circumcised keeps the precepts of the law, will not his uncircumcision be regarded as circumcision? Now just to enter here, circumcision was the covenantal sign ordained by God for the children of Abraham and Abraham himself um, as a sign of the righteousness which he had already possessed in possession of by faith. And it symbolized, it was a, a bloodletting ceremony, um, pointing all to the blood of Jesus Christ and being if you were not circumcised, then you would be cut off from the nation of Israel. So you had to have been blood-bought, pointing forward to Jesus Christ to be able to be um, in the people of God. So that was the covenant, and that was the covenantal sign. Verse 27, then he who is physically uncircumcised but keeps the law will condemn you who have the written code and circumcision but break the law. For no one is a Jew who is merely one outwardly, nor is circumcision outward and physical, but a Jew is one inwardly, and circumcision is a matter of the heart, by the Spirit, not by the letter. His praise is not from man, but from God. And again, to stop here, last week as we looked at this, I went through several Old Testament passages showing where God said that circumcision is not merely of the flesh, but circumcision of the heart. This all is to point to circumcision of the heart. And then God said, I myself will circumcise your heart when you go into the promised land. So it was never to be merely an external um, ordinance or sacrament in order to do something that just operated in and of itself. It was always had to be united by faith, as was the promise made by being of children of Abraham. Then we get to our passage this morning, chapter 3, verses 1 through 8. Then what advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? Does their unfaithfulness, does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means. Let God be true, though everyone a liar, as it is written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But if our unrighteousness serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I speak in a human way. By no means, for then how could God judge the world? 
But if through my lie, God's truth abounds to his glory, why am I still being condemned as a sinner? And why not do evil that good may come? As some people slanderously charge us with saying, their condemnation is just. The word of the Lord. And so as we, as we see this, I mean, one of the first things you, you may notice is when it says, then what advantage has the Jew or what value of circumcision? You would maybe expect the answer to be absolutely none. But that is not what he says. That's not what he says at all. He says much in every way to begin with, um, with the Jews. And so this, in the word to begin with is a word proton, um, which you've probably heard the word proton before. I had to look up, it's like, why does the Greek word proton, which means first of all or chiefly, how did that get to be what we use for the word proton? And that's why I wish Billy was here because I read that and I was like, I don't understand all that stuff, but it's one of the elementary elements of a nucleus or something like that. So the guy that come up with it said, calling it a proton based on the Greek word, that we see right here. So chiefly or first of all, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. So the first point here that we're going to explore is exactly what Paul said. Then what advantage and of what value was being a Jew, was being circumcised? What, what good was it? And his answer, verse 2, is they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And we see this as he's talking earlier and he says, you know, the gospel is the power of God and salvation to the Jew first, but also to the Greek. Now, that could sound like um, we're going to get the, the Jews saved, and it's primarily for the Jews, and then we're going to kind of throw the Greeks in, and we'll take care of them. But that's not what he's saying is, is the Jews were, they had the oracles of God. They, had, they should have been the first ones to embrace this. The gospel went first to the Jews. Paul would go first to the synagogues because they're the ones that they had the scriptures. They're the ones that would have had this, as we would call it, this Old Testament understanding of all these things that Paul is speaking of because Paul's not coming up with some brand new religion. He's, he's saying, here's the fulfillment. Good news. The Messiah has come. All the, the new covenant is here. All these things the prophets have pointed to. All these things, they're here. And then many people would hear this and fall on their faces and be saved and um, showed evidence of you know, what God is doing now as was the, told, would prophesy, where you see at Pentecost too, where um, as different people groups began to, you know, first it was the Jews that were coming to New Covenant, speaking in tongues, prophesying, and then you had the Samaritans, and as they you know, began to be saved, speaking in tongues and prophesying, and then even the Gentiles speaking in tongues and prophesying. God saying, yes, I am also including these people groups, and I am showing you that I'm doing that by these signs. And so as those things happened, it's an indication from God to say, yes, this is my work. This is not simply these disciples, my apostles, run around making up things as we go along. And then the, the fulfilling and the blessings of the, of the Holy Spirit coming upon them. But the Jews should have been the first ones to get it. And, and they were a great deal. But Paul also ran into great persecution from the Jews who saw him as teaching a new religion, an anti-Jewish religion, because they weren't getting it. And I can't imagine how frustrated Paul must have been had he not also been a Pharisee who understood completely what it was like to the point of desiring to kill and have 
Christians killed for blasphemy and for um, doing what they were doing as enemies of God, as he believed. And so, you know, there's, I just, I always remember there's an Andy Griffith episode where Opie is watching this kid that's just being a, a, a brat, and he's, his dad's like, he tells his dad, he says, there's a woodpile, a woodshed out back. He says, a woodshed. So he's going to go, you know, spank the kid that needed it. And um, Andy asks his son, Opie, he says, well, what do you think of that? He said, well, I'd rather not say Paul. He's one of my own kind. <laughs> you know, it's like, I don't want to, <laughs> I'm not going to be in favor of spanking because I know I can get spanked too. And so Paul sees this too. You're one of my own kind. These, these guys, so he's, and he even says at some point, you know, I wish that I could be cut off for them. He, he loves them. These are people who have stoned him and beaten him. Basically, have killed him, and he's been brought back to life. He's imprisoned for these things, and yet he's understanding what it's like because he too was, as he called himself, the chief of sinners. And so we have to have somewhat of an understanding of these things too, as we see sinners who are sinning against us and against others, and we may think, wow, that's worse. You know, we, we have categories of sin that, you know, certainly there are some things that are worse than others, but to understand one, there but for the grace of God go I, and also to understand that without Christ, I too would deserve hell. And so the difference between, you know, if you do the thing, it's like, well, you know, Jesus is here, and it used to be Hitler was the worst guy. So Jesus is here, Hitler is here. You know, there's a vast difference between these two guys. Where are you in this scale? And we would tend to say, well, better than Hitler, not as good as Jesus, but how much better? Like here, 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 here. You know, where, where are we closer to Jesus than Hitler? What are you doing? And then you begin to realize, you know, his holiness, our sinfulness, and the difference, you know, so that the scale isn't large enough to make much of a difference between us and Hitler compared to the holiness of God. And that's where we have to, to understand grace and mercy in the gospel as applying directly to us and having a desire for others such as ourselves who also were lost. And hopefully God will um, bring them about and turn them around. So that's what it means for the Christian to, to love his enemies. But we see this word, they were entrusted with the oracles of God. And oracles being this kind of a fancy word. It's a good word, it's the logoi of God. It kind of means, and it has this meaning of um, the religious teachings of God. It's talking about all the Old Testament you know, teachings, the scriptures, the, um, all the ordinances, everything having to do with their um, faith. All, they were entrusted with these things. So what if some were unfaithful? Uh, you also need to see the word entrusted and these words for faith, where they're unfaithful, faithlessness. That's all the root word, pistos. It's all the same root word in Greek. So the person reading this would see that. So they were entrusted with, so you can kind of read it like this if you want to hear the way the language came across. The Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. Um, what if some prove themselves to be untrustworthy? Does their untrust worthiness nullify the trustworthiness of God. So he's doing this whole word play that's in here. And because the idea is um, the problem that Paul is saying is that there's some, what if some were unfaithful? And the word some is Paul being nice because he certainly would say most are being unfaithful. And then later he goes on to say, what if everybody was 
Um, what if some failed the test? Their untrustworthiness does not nullify God's trustworthiness. And he's saying, and we had to think about, well, what greater honor and what greater gift and privilege could there have been for them to be entrusted with the words and ordinances and covenants of God's promises? There was not salvation outside of Israel. So what you can see what um, they're asking is, if you're saying it's of no value, then what good is it even to be a Jew? What good was it even to be circumcised? And he's like, he kind of is fascinated with the question because he's like, you're not getting the point. Like, you had the oracles of God. You're entrusted with the oracles of God. And if you had united these things by faith, as was supposed to be done, and Paul's seeing all this as a former Pharisee who was an expert on doing and keeping the law religiously, um, he's like, if you had seen what these things truly were pointing to, circumcision and circumcision of the heart, all the sacrifices is pointing to the need of our cleansing by the blood of Christ, all these things pointing to Jesus Christ, then you would not even ask the question. Because <laughs> you would see it's like, basically, it'd be like today he'd be saying, you were, you were given the gospel. You were living in the gospel. And... You want to know what value that was? It's, your problem is you have not faith. And so that's why you would ask the question of what advantage, because we could ask a similar type question of the church. You know, what advantage is there to being a Christian? What advantage is there to baptism? You know, if, if just going to church doesn't save you, if just taking the Lord's Supper doesn't save you, if just taking baptism, water baptism doesn't save you, you know, what good are they? Why even do them? And those questions do come up, if you, especially as a pastor, if you're talking to people about these things, or like, you know, if it's just, if I don't have to do it, you know, what good is it? Why should I do it? What's the advantage? And we can say, similarly, in every way, we're entrusted with the very oracles of God, His Word, His ordinance, His sacraments, His covenant promises, living in and amongst the, the means that the Holy Spirit uses to bring and strengthen faith. We call them the means of grace. We're, we're here in the church, and that's of great value. But the second point I want us to see is while um, we do need to look and see in this old covenant dispensation of looking at what was the advantage of being a Jew, if you're saying you know, there's no longer circumcision, there's no longer being a Jew is nothing anymore. You know, it's like, it's a, there's a difference. So the second point is, there is a difference between this old covenant difference and this new covenant difference. And that is, the church is not going to be called to abandon baptism at any point. There's not going to be another thing out there where you're going to have more apostles who come up, and this is what you have to watch, and Paul even warns against false teachers that come into the church. If somebody comes teaching another gospel, um, let him be anathema. Even if it's an angel from heaven that's coming down, another gospel, let him be anathema. So I had to be very careful of this. I think um, the bringing back of Old Testament um, festivals into the church is a part of that. Some people want to do that and say, well, it's going to point to Christ. There's some people in a dispensational theology type of thing where they um, think that eventually one day the temple will be rebuilt and sacrifices will be reinstated as a memorial to what Christ has done. And to that, I think Paul can rightly say, and the church ought to rightly say, that's anathema. Don't do that. You're, you, <laughs> this is ridiculousness. You, you, you have the fullness of the gospel 
in the sacrifice of Jesus Christ and is completely um, demonstrated tangibly and visibly in baptism and in the Lord's Supper, in the preaching of his word and in the church. You have all that is necessary for faith and salvation. There's not going to be some other thing that now there's something else. And how do we know that? I mean, you know, all of a sudden, God decides, hey, baptism, we're not doing baptism anymore. Now we're going to start doing, God, I don't even want to come up with something to be something weird. We're going to do something. Not that God does weird things, but sometimes it's like <laughs> circumcision, come on, pouring water on people, whatever, you know, eating a little pieces of bread and a little cup of wine. It's like, all right, so what next? And the answer for the church is nothing. This is it. We're living in the final days. That's what this means. You're living in the last days. This is it. We're in the new covenant. How do you know there's nothing else? Because God has said so. So you're in the Old Testament church. You're in the Israel. You're living under the Mosaic covenant still. And um, Paul is coming up and he's saying, okay, there's um, circumcision. No. That counts for nothing. Now we're, you know, entrance into the covenant community now is baptism. And then uh, how about Passover? No, that was for Israel. We're now Jesus took that and he's transformed it and he said there's, you know, now there is, um, I am the Passover. And so the Passover is fulfilled in Jesus Christ. But at the supper, he says, this is the new covenant. This is my body given for you. This is the cup of this, the, this cup is the blood of the new covenant. And so he has said, as soon as I die on the cross and am resurrected, and the Holy Spirit descends upon you at Pentecost. This is the, the inauguration of the new covenant. The new covenant. So it's like Jesus is walking around talking about this new covenant. What's up with Jesus? All of a sudden, walking around, some, some guy walking around. I know he's not just some guy, but here he is. Some guy walking around talking about new covenant. Uh, John the Baptist coming out here and starting to, to baptize people and stuff. It's like just for the you know, forgiveness of sins. And it's like... Where is this coming from? It's like everybody's like, there's nowhere has God ever said this before. Wrong. All this is foretold in the Old Testament. All these things are foretold. There's a new covenant coming. The prophets were all talking about the new covenant. Um, Isaiah particularly and um, Jeremiah and uh, talking about, you know, in, <clears throat> there's a new covenant. I will write my laws on their heart. I'm going to sprinkle their hearts with, <laughs> with clean water. The, the Spirit's going to be poured out in fullness. They're, you know, it's just all these things are, are being pointed to. And even John the Baptist coming, you know, I will prepare a way before him, you know, and all that's prophesied. John the Baptist being prophesied. All these things were being prophesied. So if we're looking forward now, what's being prophesied about what's next for the church? What's next for the Christian church? And what's next for the Christian church is Jesus is coming back. That's the next thing. This is what we're part of what we celebrate um, in the Lord's Supper is the fact that he is coming back. That we have his presence spiritually with us today as we're right now by faith receiving the gospel. And he's promises this by saying, and here's a sacrament a, a, um, for the church, for those who have um, covenanted with Christ to come to him and those who by faith are united to him are receiving the body and blood of Christ. And of course, that gets all, you know, in the Catholic Church, they're saying it actually transforms into 
And you're like, where do they get that craziness? It's like, because if you think about it, it's not that crazy. Because we actually, Jesus is saying, this is my body, this is my blood. He is saying in this sacrament that you do indeed spiritually receive me by faith when you're hearing the preaching of the gospel. This is what you get. You get me, Christ. And then he gives us this meal to say, and here's a tangible sign and seal of it. You get to hold this and taste this. You get to drink this. And he told us to do this as a way of helping us to secure our faith. So if we are sitting here and we're listening to under the preached word of God, hearing the gospel being proclaimed, you know, hopefully in the power of the Holy Spirit, received by faith in the Holy Spirit, you are now receiving Christ. As surely as you will receive the bread and the cup, you receive Christ by his promise. That's what he says. And with baptism, same thing. That we who are baptized um, see this visible sign of union with Christ in his death and the remission of sins, the washing away of sins by water baptism, which represents his spirit, which descends upon us and cleanses us from all sin and unites us into a death like his and also into a resurrection like his. You're baptized into an experience. You're baptized as if you too were there. When Christ died, you died with him. When he raised, you were raised with him. Of what advantage is baptism, is water baptism, much in every way. It communicates to us in a powerful way a remembrance that God has said, not only does the gospel save people, but you have been baptized. Don't forget that I have said you are one of my children, and the, the covenant of grace has a condition. And most people want to think that the covenant of grace is unconditional. But it is. It was actually two conditions. One, it was conditioned upon the obedience of Christ, which he fulfilled every obedience, and he also died in our place. But it's also conditioned upon our faith. Faith is the condition of our salvation. So for those whose faith is united um, to Christ, as surely as the water has descended and been placed upon your head, or you are placed into the water, as surely as the baptismal waters have been placed upon you and marked you and set you apart, so surely those who receive Christ by faith have been cleansed of their sins. And that's what we've done. He gave us a physical, visible sign. So when you see somebody being baptized, you get to remember and think back to your baptism, whether you remember it, uh, you were an infant when you were baptized, you're an adult when you were baptized, whatever it is, that you're able to look back at that and say, I too have received that mark from him. And now I go forward and receive him in the Lord's Supper. So we have to be careful about how we do these things, but understanding that faith is, the object of our faith is what saves us, not even just faith. Um, that it's, it is an important thing. So we have to recognize that what Paul is doing is he's not coming up with something new. Jesus did not come up with something new. He was fulfilling what was promised in the Old Testament. So that's why there's not going to be new things because there's nothing that was prophesied. There was nothing that Jesus talked about other than his return for his church. And, and when you die... You'll be, you know, today you'll be with me in paradise, which is that Greek word for garden. You know, you'll be with me in the, the true garden of Eden. So we look, you know, to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. But this glorification thing that we're going to all receive, this um, new heavens and new earth, that's going to be something that we all get to go at one time together with those who have gone before um, and go, what? <laughs> you know, just all in this 
holy, holy, holy. You know, it's like the, the, the surprising thing is how are we going to get up off our knees? How are we possibly going to be able to stand all the glory? We're, we will have to be transformed physically and spiritually in order to be able to take in the glory that we will see. And so that's what we look forward to in the gospel. And so when Paul is talking about these things, particularly here and in, in Romans, one of my favorite little words is, I think he's flabbergasted. He's like, you're not getting it because you don't have faith. What good was it to be a Jew? Much in every way, you were entrusted with the oracles of God. If some of the Jews are unfaithful, that doesn't mean God's not faithful. God is faithful. God is fulfilling the promises that he promised through circumcision and all the other ordinances, he is fulfilling his promises, particularly the promise that he made to Abraham. So he's saying God is the faithful promise keeper. He has fulfilled his covenant promises in Jesus Christ. To Adam, God said, the day you eat, you shall surely die. But he did not die that day because of the sacrifice of the animal um, to cover their um, bodies that they had tried to cover their sin with fig leaves. You can't do it yourself. You have to have God cover you. And he did, all foreshadowing Jesus Christ and his sacrificial death. And also the promise of a, the, the serpent head crusher is going to come. So you have the promise of the gospel right there in Genesis. And then Christ is called the last or second Adam in 1 Corinthians 15, talking about the resurrection. So we see all of this being fulfilled all the way through the gospel. There's this, this this promise that just goes straight through. We call it um, um, progressive revelation. So that you see promises, and as you see uh, more and more covenants being made, more and more things happening. It, it, okay, okay, okay. It's all building, it's all building, and then you get to the new covenant, the pinnacle of it all, the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, in whom all the promises of God are yes and amen. There's no other promises of God that have not been fulfilled in Jesus Christ. This is it, and this is the good news. We're, we're in it. We're in the last days. We're in the, we're in the times of grace. This is, this is the last institution. This is the last thing that God is doing on earth to save mankind. We're here and we are calling all men. The Spirit is going throughout the entire world. The Spirit blows where He will. Um, there's no longer a call to come in. There's a call to go out and to call people to be baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that Jesus Christ has commanded so that we are able to fulfill this great um, commission from God fulfilling the Abrahamic covenant of promises of being a blessing to all nations of children more than the sands of the sea and the stars of the sky as we have hold out and continue to hold out great hope for the movement of the gospel in our world. And I would say as we've been going through Romans, when you look at our world and you say, um, I, hear, I heard a podcast and they were talking about, the question was, do you believe we live in the last times? The theological answer to that is yes, of course, because the Bible calls this the last times. But it's like, what do you mean by that? Do you mean surely Jesus is returning in judgment for the entire world within you know, a short period of time? And the answer to that is, I don't know, maybe not. I mean, maybe what you see happening as the world is growing darker and darker and darker and you see this awfulness and this twisted and crooked generation. One, there's nothing new under the sun. 
I mean, read some stuff about how bad Rome got. You know, it could be last days for the United States, but the United States is not the church, nor is it the entire world, but that's not even guaranteed either. But what you see is the judgment of God on people because people are being turned over to these things, and the darker darkness gets, the brighter brightness shines. So perhaps God is doing an answering of our prayers for revival by saying, fine, I'm sending in the Babylonians to come in and cause some problems. I'm going to turn people over to their sin. The way I'm going to bring about revival is not the way you want me to do it necessarily, because what do we want? We want tent revivals. We want people to come busting our doors. We want people to fall down and start just, you know, I want to be able to go out and just say, you know, do y'all know about Jesus? No, please tell us about Jesus. You know, everywhere you go, it's just like the Great Awakening. Everybody's talking about Jesus. Everybody's talking about Jesus because it's just this Great Awakening. And it can happen like that. But it can also happen in the gulags. It can happen with, you know, horrific, terrible atrocities occurring in the world, darkness darkening and darkening, and the church maintaining its faithfulness in the midst of this. I mean, God can win by many or by few. It's typically a remnant, and it begins with prayer. So, you know, don't be discouraged by the things you see happening in the world because we walk by faith, not by sight. God is at work. Christ is building his church. So, I don't know, maybe I think what's happening is our faith and confidence in the world and the worldly ways of doing things is being stripped away. Amen and amen. Let it be so. We need to determine to live by faith and not by sight and not trust in, in man. So, the death that was deserved because of Adam's sin by all men was laid on Jesus on the cross. He became this curse for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. And in him, with Christ as our covenantal head, our representative before God, without Christ, you're in Adam, still in your own sin, but in Christ, you have the remission of sins, the forgiveness of sins, you have holiness, you have justification, you have all the promises of God given to you in adoption, and, and all of these things. And this is what Paul is saying in verse 4. He's saying, does was the faithfulness of God nullified? Does it, and he said, by no means, let God be true, though everyone a liar, as is written, that you may ju- be justified in your words and prevailed, and, and prevail when you are judged. And this is from Psalm 51.4 that we've seen. We said in our um, prayer today, we read some of it. And basically what, what um, David is saying is he's been um, found out with his sin with Bathsheba and the killing of her husband. Um, we sing, you know, God be merciful to me. On thy grace I set my, my plea. I proclaim thy judgment against me just. So that if anybody were ever to go back and look at you and say, was he just in judging me, David? They would say, absolutely. And so that's what we do with our own sin to say, and R.C. Sproul talking about this last week, he said, well, a recording of him, and he said, um, he believes he's saved by grace through faith. He says, but... If God were to judge me purely on my actions and I were to end up in hell, if I were to end up in hell, I know that it would be God's justice that put me there. Not anything else other than his justice that put me there. And so people who sin and then God judges them, the Bible tells us, and Paul tells us, that God will be glorified in the condemnation of the unrighteous that God will be glorified by his wrath against sin. And so the question becomes, and he picks it up again in chapter 6, the question is, well then, if God is glorified by my sinning, 
Why don't I just sin more so God may be glorified more? It's like, well, there you go. There's a good twisted little way of looking at things. But it makes a logical sense if you think about it. And then Paul is here saying in verse 5 that um, he says, if our unrighteousness, I think here he's talking about ours as the Jewish unrighteousness, serves to show the righteousness of God, what shall we say? That God is unrighteous to inflict wrath on us? I'm speaking in a, he's kind of like, I'm talking crazy. I'm speaking in a human way. By no means, then how could God judge the world? So, you know, it can't be any judgment. If, if God judges sin and that serves to glorify him, therefore he can't judge sin because sin glorifies him, then he can't judge sin. You see what he gets into, this little logical conundrum that he's in? So he, he obviously will judge sin. And then verse 7, he starts to talk about if, if through my lie, and this is one of these difficult verses, and we believe what he's talking about here is you guys are charging me with lying and yet they want to say, use this same argument. He's saying, use the same logic on me. You want to say that your unrighteousness is causing God to be glorified, then God can't judge that unrighteousness. He's like, well, then what about me? You think I'm sinning. And if you think I'm sinning, then that just abounds to his glory. Why are you condemning, condemning me for a sinner? You don't want to be condemned for your unrighteousness. Don't condemn me for mine. And there's a certain logic to that. And then he says, why not do evil that good may come? As some people are slanderously charging us with saying their condemnation is just. So people are saying that Paul is preaching that people need to do evil things so that good things can happen. And that's an interesting thought. If you hold your place here and go to Genesis chapter 50, um, you'll see um, you know, one of the, the great texts about this from Joseph as he's speaking to his brothers who have done terrible things to him. If you know the story of Joseph and the coat of many colors, which, you know, they put goat's blood on it and take it back to the father and say, Joseph is dead. You know, his most beloved, they, they basically kill him because he's the father's favorite child. And um, so they were going to kill him, but he ends up not getting killed, thrown to a pit, sold in slavery, you know, and down, down, down he goes. And then up, up, up he rises by the providence of God being in charge of Egypt and saving people um, all over the known world right then from a great famine. And so... Um, Chapter Genesis 50, verse 15, um, the, the father's now dead. I was reminded um, this weekend, a, a friend, a, a high school friend that passed away, and we spread his ashes out this weekend at a, a place we used to go and hang out at when I was, we were younger. And uh, so we started thinking, um, well, let's, let's talk about stuff that happened back then. Some things I am ashamed of and will not share here. But one of those was, um, and I'm kind of ashamed of this too, I was 16, so cut me a little bit of slack, but I should have been, anyway, I was, all this stuff has been worked out. Um, my parents bought a brand new car, a Chevette. Now this is awesome. We had two Pintos before this. We moved up to a Chevette. So now we got the Chevette. And I asked, I'm telling my Chevette story, Amy. So I asked my mother, might I please, Mother, take the Chevette off with my friends? To which she said, no, it's brand new. To which I said, thank you, Mother. And then I took it, and I went, and I took the car, and I drove it away, and I'm going down the road, and it's a dirt road, and it's a sharp curve, and I turned that curve, and I slid over this way, and the next thing I saw was the ground coming up here. I flipped it, hit a tree. The tree hit behind my head, and my friend was, other friend was reminding me of this. He said, we looked back. We saw you. We just stopped the car, ran back. We went, like, 
you know, and so we flipped the car over, and the first thing, the reason I'm bringing it up here is because the first thing out of my mouth was, take me to my grandmother's house because my grandmother would protect me from my father. <laughs> there was no way that my grandmother would let him get his hands on me. That, that, she was my, my comfort and my sweet support. So that's where I ran. And um, in this story where the brothers are, grandma's gone now. And so, verse 15, when Joseph's brothers saw that their father was dead, they said, it may be that Joseph will hate us and pay us back for all the evil that we did to him. Now they're confessing it. They recognize it as evil. They're going, now we're going to get it. So they sent a messenger to Joseph. And he says, your father gave this command before he died. <laughs> so if I could be like me, I don't think it would have helped. My grandma, your mama said not to spank me. It's like, she ain't here, son. So say to Joseph, please forgive the transgression of your brothers and their sin because they did evil to you. And now please forgive the transgression of the servants of the God of your father. And so Joseph wept when they spoke to him. And his brothers also came and fell down before him and said, Behold, we are your servants. And Joseph said to them, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. So do not fear. I will provide for you and your little ones. Thus he comforted them and spoke kindly to them. So Joseph was not saying, it's fine. Why don't y'all go do more evil? Seems like the worse things y'all do, the better things happen. Just what else you got? He didn't say that. That wasn't his point at all. He said that I forgive you. He extended grace to his brothers, and then he comforted them with the words of the truth of the sovereignty of God, even over their sinful actions. He wasn't justifying their actions because God used it for good. He was trying to comfort his brothers to say, I forgive you, and the evil that you intended ended up being used for great good by God. And that is a comfort to us as believers, because we've all done evil, and God uses that and has promised to use it, that all things working together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purposes. It doesn't mean then, um, it's, it's a comforting truth. It's not an excuse for sin and twisting of scripture as a cold-hearted, non-believing Christian is going to do. We'll take the idea of grace run with it in terrible directions. And so what a lot of the church wants to do is downplay the preaching of grace because people might do bad things because they think they can get away with it. We're not preaching the gospel of grace to non-believers who are not united to Christ. You're preaching the gospel of grace to people who are united to Christ by faith. There's the law, and then you come to Christ where you get a new heart, and you get to hear the gospel and you get saved, and there's transformation, and there's understanding that we're called to work out our salvation with fear and trembling, which doesn't mean make sure you're saved. It means do, there needs to be an outworking of it. You know, you want, this is, I want there to be an outworking of my faith. I know what I believe. It, 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 it needs to be having an outworking. And the last point is 
unfaithful, hard-hearted religious people will fight hard for their external religion. Unfaithful, hard-hearted religious people will fight hard for their external religion. Why? And it's because it's, it's all they got. It's all they have. They have the appearance of religion, but only a man-made power. And Paul writes to the godly Timothy. So let's just close with this. If you look at 2 Timothy, at least it's the last place we're turning. So 2 Timothy, all the little writings of Paul, all the writings of Paul are grouped together. 2 Timothy 3. So you, you know, just read and listen to what he says, because this is, this is what he's talking about. You know, these unfaithful, hard-hearted religious people who will fight hard for external religion. Understand this, that in the last days, that's us, there will come times of difficulty, for people will be lovers of self, lovers of money, proud, arrogant, abusive, disobedient to parents, ungrateful, unholy, heartless, unappeasable, slanderous, without self-control, brutal, not loving good, treacherous, reckless, swollen with conceit, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God, having the appearance of godliness, but denying its power, and that's what this external religion is. It has the appearance of godliness, but it is denying its power. Avoid such people, for among them are those who creep into households and capture weak women, burdened with sins and led astray by various passions. They're always learning and never able to arrive at a knowledge of the truth. Just as Janus and Jambres opposed Moses, now this is supposedly the, the names of the two uh, magicians who were copying Moses' miracles that he was doing for a while, um, those men opposed the truth. Men corrupted in mind, so it's like people are doing the same thing. They're corrupted in mind and they're disqualified regarding the faith, but they will not get very far, for their folly will be plain to all as was that of those two men. You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at Antioch, at Iconium, and at Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted, while evil people and impostors will go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. But as for you, continue in what you have learned and have firmly believed, knowing from whom you have learned it and how from childhood you have been acquainted with the sacred writings which are able to make you wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus, all Scripture is breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. So we don't want to miss it, too, in Romans 3, 5. He says, how else will God judge the world? God will judge the world there will be a judgment. And the only way to withstand the judgment is not by the righteousness that we've been able to conjure up or produce by doing religious things or trying to do good things, but it's only by being hidden in Christ through faith in Him. An external religion will be stripped from a person quickly and completely so that you, along as Adam and Eve was, you would stand there naked and ashamed before a holy God. Paul, before he was converted, understood this. And now by faith in that same God, he proclaims and worships 
Jesus Christ. And so our question has to be simply, do you know him? Do you, do you know him or do you just participate in some kind of religious activities? Because you can ask yourself, you know, if my baptism didn't save me, if coming to the Lord's Supper doesn't save me, if just going to church doesn't save me, then, you know, why do I do it? First of all, one, God commands it. Second of all, because it's the visible, tangible um, evidences that are applied of the working of the gospel in people. Um, but the main thing some people even will ask themselves is, you know, this question, am I elect? How do I know I'm saved? And the question to that is, well, one, you don't look into the secret things of God. The question is, do I have faith? Do you have faith? Do you believe? Because faith is the evidence. Faith is the substance. Faith is the thing which Jesus says, this is the conduit of your salvation. Believe in me and you shall be saved. It's a trusting in the promises of God. And this is what Paul was saying. The reason you're asking me what advantage is it is because you were not trusting in the promises that these things all pointed to and now in the reality are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So our baptism and the Lord's Supper are these visible, tangible signs that he gives to the church, to ones who are united to the church by covenant, that if you are united to Christ by faith, these things are true for you. So let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the blessing that's ours in hearing the gospel and that for those who do not have faith, faith even comes by hearing these words. So it's a great means of grace. Baptism and the Lord's Supper are not a means of grace for a non-believer. They're means of grace for the believer that we might look to these things and say, yes, thank you for going beyond a promise, which would be more than enough, but making a covenant with signs and seals, assuring us that we are partakers of these things if we believe. And we pray this in Christ's name.